Welcome to the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast, featuring the original hockey insider, Bob McKenzie. Hey, that's me, answering your questions on hockey or just about anything else, within reason, of course. If you have a question you would like answered, email me at bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca. And we'll try to get it on the Bobcast. We were a Hey everyone, and welcome to Season 3, Episode Number 17 of the At TSN Hockey Bobcast. This one for Thursday, May 16th, 2019. You might call this the Houston We Have a Problem edition of the Bobcast, or I guess more precisely, NHL We Have a Problem, an officiating problem. So no banter to begin this episode. Let's get right down to the uh, absolute nitty-gritty. There's been so much controversy in these NHL playoffs with the officiating calls, video reviews. I mean, let's highlight a couple of the big ones or a few of the big ones. Obviously, last night, um, San Jose Sharks, uh, St. Louis Blues. Game three in St. Louis, and obviously the reason why we're kicking things off today with a discussion about officiating. Timo Meyer has the uncalled hand pass to Eric Carlson for the game-winning goal in overtime. And it was a hand pass. There's no doubt about that. None of the four on ice officials saw it. And it was not eligible to be reviewed by video. So San Jose wins. Uh, We can flash back, I guess, to uh, second period of game seven, San Jose, Colorado. And there was the offside video review that uh, nullified what would have been the tying goal. Um, and as I said, in the early in the second period, I think it was by uh, by Colorado because of what I guess we can call a hair splitting interpretation of Gabriel Landeskog's status on a delayed offside. Now that goal would have made it two two. It didn't decide the game per se. Uh, instead, the game remained two one, and San Jose eventually went on to win three two. So San Jose wins again. Now, we go back one series earlier than that. In the late stages of Game 7 between the Vegas Golden Knights and San Jose, with the Knights leading 3-0 late in the game, um, Cody Eakin of the Knights was assessed a major penalty that I think most everyone agrees should have only been a minor penalty. And unbelievably, as fate would have it, the hockey gods were conspiring here, not just the officials, uh, San Jose scores four, four, count them, four power play goals to take the lead. And although what Vegas did tie it up um, late in the regulation, San Jose wins it in overtime here. And I guess uh, somebody's going to point out and say, notice a pattern here. San Jose wins again. So so let's get that part of it out of the way right away. There's, there's no conspiracy here. Um, you know, take off your tinfoil hat. You look silly. Um, however, if, if we want to have a grown-up discussion on officiating and these problems, and they are problems that we're seeing by all means, then let's get after it. Um, there's been so much of it. I think that's, that, that's part of the problem. It's, and it's, it's not just the big ones. I mean, you know, I mentioned those mammoth ones all involving the San Jose Sharks, but we saw a goal come off the netting and because the player who took it off the netting after the referees and linesmen didn't see it and passed it and it got shot into the net, um, it counted because none of the four officials saw it. And it's the, the rule book states it's, it's only an issue if the player who takes it off the net shoots it directly into the net. So, again, we're splitting hairs on rules and the rule book says you can't 
uh, do anything about it. So um, that's that. But I think everybody right now is focused on last night's controversy between the Blues and the Sharks, and understandably so. As I, as I said earlier, there is zero doubt about it. It is a hand pass. It should have been whistled down. The goal should not have counted. And, um, you know, I know there were some people who said, oh, well, you know, maybe it went off Jay Bowmister's leg. Uh, it doesn't matter, even if it did. Even if it clipped his, his leg, it, it wouldn't have changed what the call should have been, and that is hand pass, no goal. And no one knows any of this better than the four on-ice officials and, and their veteran referees, Mark Jeanette and Dan O'Rourke, and as well as linesman Johnny Murray and Matt McPherson. And, and I think it's safe to say that these four on-ice officials are absolutely mortified, devastated that they didn't see it, that they didn't get it right. Now, I will grant you this, <laughs> not as mortified or upset as Blues general manager Doug Armstrong was, or head coach Craig Brube, or for that matter, any of the Blues players or their fans. But nevertheless, um, I don't think there's any question here that the, the, these on-ice officials are devastated by this non-call that they didn't make. Um, now, what I would say is this. If any one of them had actually seen Meyer bat the puck to Carlson, they would have whistled it down. I mean, they're not cheaters. They're not liars. They're, they're human beings who obviously didn't see what they needed to see in this instance. And I know what you're going to say next, and, and it's, fair, it's fair game. How do four sets of eyes not see this? It's, you know, it's ridiculous. And fair enough. But there is part of me, honestly, that understands how four sets of eyes could miss something. I'd, I'd love to get a, a really good overhead view of the rink that shows all the positioning of the refs and all the positioning of the players. So you had the one ref on video. You could see him down low. I, I believe it was Mark Jeanette. Um, he's below the goal line. He's following the puck. His primary focus is, is that puck going to go across the line at any time? Cause I'm the ref that's got to make that call. The other ref, uh, Dan O'Rourke is the high guy. He's outside the offensive zone. And then you've got one linesman right on the blue line uh, up against the boards. And you've got the other linesman um, more in the neutral zone on, on the other side of the rink. So as I said, I would really like to see a freeze frame overhead view of all four on ice officials, as well as all the players on the ice. And then I'd like to take a laser beam and guide it from each on ice official to Timo Meyer at that precise moment that he was about to bat the puck out of the air. And I'd like to see which officials, if any, have what you would say is a clear line of sight um, between them and and the referee, and then, and sorry, and between them and, and Meyer. And then the next thing to understand is, well, you know, what's the linesman's job in that situation? Is it to be looking for that? Is it to be looking for something else? Um, what's the difference between the high ref and the low ref in terms of their, their specific responsibilities in terms of what they're looking. So as I said, my quick look just at the normal video of the actual play, Jeanette was behind the net and it certainly looked to me like he had at least one body, maybe two bodies fully blocking the line of sight to Timo Meyer. And, and I know now what you're going to say next. And, and that is, well, if the refs can't see it, then Jesus Christ, give them some help. And how can we let something so obvious go uncorrected when the video clearly shows it? And that's a hell of a point. 
And, you know, we have this debate at the general managers meetings every year in Boca. And, and I don't know what Doug Armstrong's position has been in previous general managers meetings um, when they bring up, hey, maybe we should get video for this or maybe we should do video for that. And the GMs put their hand up collectively at some point, but uh, obviously some are in favor of it, but not, not ever nearly enough to, to change things. And so I'd be curious, you know, what Doug Armstrong and others were saying when, well, what if we brought in video for this? Did they say, no, we don't want that? So, you know, anytime the league, and there have been times where the league has actually pushed and said, maybe we should do a little more video review. The general managers have said, no, we don't want to do it. And then there's times when GMs have pushed for more video review and the league and or the referees through the, you know, director of officiating, Stephen Walkham have said, no, we don't want more video review. So, um, you know, listen, everybody, a lot of general managers in particular have been unhappy at how the offside coaches challenge review has rolled out over the years. And so it's funny, the dichotomy that we've run into here this season in particular, because for much of the year, what I heard was fans and media and myself saying, you know what, this video review is killing the game. There's too much video. We're splitting hairs too much on this offside challenge. We're totally ruining the experience of watching a hockey game now. We watch a goal get scored, and we're not even conditioned to believe that it's a goal anymore because we're waiting to see what could this be reviewed for. Maybe goalie interference? Maybe offside? We just don't know. And, and I mean, now, and here's the dichotomy I was talking about, so all year long, myself, so many fans, so many other people in the media have said, this video review stuff is killing us, just killing this game. And then the playoffs started, and we started getting missed calls. And so every time a defenseman shoots the puck over the glass, and the two referees and the two linesmen aren't entirely sure whether it went off somebody or off the glass, um, they confer, and they're, they're, they're going back and forth, and they're talking about it. And you clearly get the feeling sometimes, hmm, I don't think they know. And we just saw the video that clearly shows nobody touched it. It went directly out of play. It's a penalty. It absolutely should be a penalty. And we start yelling at the screen. Just let them look at the video. Look at the video. So now all of a sudden, the same guys, me and you and so many others, that all season long said, video is goddamn killing us here. Now we're saying, just go to video. Just check about it. So we moan about video all year long and suddenly in the playoffs. Now we're crying out for almost every situation to be reviewed, which um, I guess brings us to our first question of the Bobcast. And this is a timely one. It came in on Monday before Wednesday's brouhaha in St. Louis. But obviously there have been enough calls, controversy over the course of the playoffs up to Monday that uh, this Bobcast listener... um, fired off this very appropriate email. It comes from a fellow named Justin Wright, and the subject line says, Time for a TMO in the NHL? Hey, Bob, love the show and everything you do. Something's been nagging at me for a while now. I hope you can take the time to read this, though it may be a bit lengthy. It seems like every week there's a new conversation about how best to utilize video review in the NHL. Nobody wants to see a big game turn on an obvious missed call that can't be reviewed. <laughs> you are a, 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 you are a Kreskin, 
Justin, right? Um, but no one wants to fall down this rabbit hole where every play is reviewed, resulting in lengthy delays. Even coaches' challenge take forever as some entries are dissected to see if a player might have been a hair offside. <clears throat> Excuse me. The solution to this, in my opinion, is a television match official, TMO. A single referee, uh, or TMO, is assigned to each NHL game. He or she could be off-site or at the arena in a closed room with monitors closely following the game. When the refs on the ice are not sure about something, they contact the TMO via an earpiece and they simply ask for the right call. An example of this would be the major penalty on the Joe Pavelski hit in round one. In this case, the refs would simply ask the TMO if the infraction warrants a minor or a major penalty and the TMO would make the call. The thing is, calls are often subjective, like goalie interference. So the TMO is not going to, quote, get it right every time, unquote, but they will always catch those major blunders and provide a safety net for the refs when they believe they've missed something. This method is familiar to a lot of European soccer and rugby fans like myself. It seems to work pretty well. Most calls are the right ones and the game moves along very well. I noticed the NHL was quick to adopt coaches' challenge from the NFL, but I wonder if they should be looking overseas for their model. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Love the Bobcast. All the best from Justin Wright in Nanaimo, British Columbia. Well, Justin, that is a timely and well-thought-out uh, correspondence to the Bobcast, and I, I think you're probably on to something. Um, would I have said that before last night's game between St. Louis and San Jose? Maybe. I'm still hesitant to go down that video rabbit hole, as you called it. But, I mean, whether it's just a full moon type thing, the, the number of huge calls that have turned games on their ear in these playoffs because of uh, officiating or video review issues, um, man, oh, man, this is such an important time of the year. And I think, clearly, this idea of a TMO um, is ultimately where we're headed. Now, I guess it's been prevalent in soccer and some soccer leagues for a little bit. Um, they call it VAR video assist referee um, in, in English football. And I think the premiership uh, next season is going to a VRA system full time. Um, and as I said, other leagues in soccer and in internationally, they've been doing it for a while. Um, the obvious goal here is not to take the game entirely out of the hands of the on-ice officials, but to give somebody who they trust the latitude to let them know when a call has been missed or when the incorrect call has been made. And I think we're basically at the point now where the four sets of eyes isn't enough, that there needs to be a fifth set of eyes. But rather than centralize this at Hockey Ops in Toronto, I think for it to work properly in the NHL, you almost need to assign somebody to be um, part of that officiating team. So as I say, maybe it's only for the playoffs to start um, because the stakes are so high in the playoffs. But here's the thing. You know what happens next. Let's say we did, let's say we institute a TMO system or a VAR system for the National Hockey League, and we say it's only for the playoffs. You know exactly what's going to happen. I'll tell you what's going to happen. 
the final game of the regular season and there's a team that needs a point to get into the playoffs <laughs> and there's going to be some officiating miscue or video review issue that costs that team the game and they're not going to make the playoffs and somebody's going to say, oh, wow, yeah, only playoffs count. doesn't matter if he gets screwed out of making the playoffs because the league's too cheap to have it. But, it, it, you know, well, maybe we do need it for every game. Maybe it is every regular season game in the National Hockey League. Um, but uh, I fear it's becoming a necessary evil. Um, but make no mistake, <laughs> I think it is evil. Um, but, you know, we're always in that quest to get things right. And, and in the case of these referees and linesmen last night, um, in, in fairness to them, they didn't make it up. They didn't see it. So they didn't guess. And, and that's what they're supposed to do. And I think that's a, a different situation than the one involving um, Eric Furlot and Dan O'Halloran when they made the five-minute major call. There was obviously guesswork involved in that. In my mind, that was a bigger mistake than the one we saw last night. One was an error of omission, um, not seeing something. The other one was an error of seeing something, and, and, but not really seeing it and, and drawing a conclusion from that. Um, this whole issue of TMOs and VAR, expanded video review, get it right, um, you know, Give, give the open up a, a much wider latitude for the league to correct on ice officiating mistakes. Um, like I say, I get all that, but I also get this. I remember very well, February 2013, Matt Duchesne was offside by about nine feet playing for the Colorado Avalanche at the time. And everybody went batshit crazy, and rightfully so, because how do you miss an offside by like about nine feet? And it wasn't reviewable. That was the thing. If you go back, it's always instructive to go back and Google it up, read the stories from back then. And they said, well, everybody could see, except for the linesman and the referee, that he was nine feet offside. Um, but rule book says it's not reviewable. Well, therefore, we can't review it. And you know what everybody said? Well, it should be reviewable. That's ridiculous. So they said, okay, we're going to bring an offside challenge. We're going to get it right. Offside, it's an objective thing. It's not even subjective. It's black and white. We'll make it blue and white. The line's blue. The ice is white. The puck is black. It's a, it's a blue, black, and white thing. Just a matter of determining, are you over that line or not? Did the puck go over the line before the player? Easy. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> what could go wrong indeed? So now we've been all whining about offside video review all season long and, the, and how it's gone because we never thought something so objective could become so subjective, but it has. And now we're here talking about TMOs and VARs and giving the NHL the latitude to fix referees' mistakes with video. And we ask ourselves, hey, come on, what could go wrong? Got to get it right. Career's at stake. And to that, I would simply say, I agree. But let's be careful what we wish for. So TMO, bring it on. Call it whatever you want. Bring it on in some form or another. 
and then buckle up. Let's stay with the officiating theme. We've got an email from Scott in Burnaby, British Columbia. Hi, Bob. I am a huge San Jose Sharks fan. Obviously, people have been making a huge deal over the calls in the Game 7s, but there have been many other controversial calls in the first two rounds of the playoffs. Instead of changing the rules, why doesn't the league try to get younger referees? We now see hockey players dominating at 20 years old, and not many are at the top of their game the past the age of 30. Why would this be any different for referees? I think the league should implement a program to start training refs after players age out from major junior or Finnish university. I think it's clear that many of the officials are past their prime athletically, even though they continue to do the job adequately. We need improvement, and this may be a solution. That from Scott and Burnaby. And Scott, I I think there's a number of points to make here. Um, Number one, I think you make a good point um, to a point. And and that is this. I think generally speaking, uh, an athletic endeavor like playing in the NHL, there's no question there's a diminishing return once you get into your 30s. I would say it could work opposite with officiating. Um, That, yes, athleticism is certainly required for the position, especially the speed of the game now that these guys have to get around the ice. But I've got to believe that more experience is equals good experience and that referees that have um, have experienced the ups and downs of the job um, and learn from their various mistakes are going to be better than referees that just come in with little or no experience. That said, there's already a National Hockey League program in place. Um, you, you mentioned that, you know, maybe they should uh, be promoting this, start training refs as they get players aging out from major junior Finnish university. Well, they already have, and they've had now for a number of years, um, the uh, the NHL combine, NHL officials combine. They run it in Buffalo um, every August, I believe. I think it's August, maybe late August, early September. And what they do is they basically put out the all call to every former player uh, who's ever played hockey and basically said, hey, if you'd like to explore a, a, a potential career in officiating, um, this is your opportunity. And there have been results in terms of the uh, the guys that are in the league now as, as linesmen or referees um, having come from that combine. So Corey Nagy, who was a New Jersey Devil draft pick, I want to say in 2000... Um, actually, what year was it? Hold on one second here. On the fly research. One second here. We'll go to our good friends at HockeyDB.com. Corey Nagy, Corey with a K. There we go. Um, yeah, he was a fifth round pick of the New Jersey Devils in 2008. Uh, had a good junior career with the Oshawa Generals. And then played mostly in the American Hockey League from 2009 through to uh, 2014, where he concluded his AHL career with the Toronto Marlies. So Corey Nagy is now a full-time linesman in the National Hockey League, and he got his start as an off, uh, as an on-ice official by going to that very first combine that the National Hockey League um, put out. Um, another one who I think he was at the, at the first combine is a full-time linesman in the NHL, Ryan Gibbons, 
sixth round pick of the Arizona Coyotes in 2003, played a bunch of years for the Seattle Thunderbirds in the Western Hockey League. And as fate would have it, if I'm not mistaken, Ryan Gibbons was the uh, backup linesman uh, in last night's St. Louis-San Jose game. So there we go, kind of full circle with the emails. But um, also to your point, Scott and Burnaby, uh, Corey Savret is um, not a full-time official just yet in the National Hockey League, but um, he is working some NHL games and AHL games. And he was recently playing, his playing career ended in 2016-17, so just two years ago. And he's already referee, He's already officiating um, NHL games. Corey Savret, of course, was a Florida Panthers sixth-round pick who um, played in the OHL with both uh, the Guelph Storm and the London Knights. Um, another guy in that situation, Travis Garletz. Um, he was uh, played four years at the University of Minnesota Duluth. He graduated in 2008 and then played in the East Coast League and then went over and played in the Czech League in Austria. Um, finished up his um, his pro career in 2013-14 and he's already a linesman who's working some NHL games uh, split between the NHL and the uh, and the American Hockey League. Uh, Connor O'Donnell's another guy like that. Connor O'Donnell um, played for the Windsor Spitfires, won a Memorial Cup there um, in 09 and um, he uh, played on the that, that Spitfire team with Taylor Hall and what have you. And um, he's a guy who's splitting games now between the American Hockey League and, and the NHL. So there is this program in place and the NHL is looking to try and um, add as many former players at young ages as possible. Um, to, so to your point, the NHL is kind of trying to get that done. But I also think there's no substitute for experience. And even though a lot of the experienced referees make a lot of mistakes, it's um, really the nature of the beast, nature of the position. Well, let's give the officials and ourselves a break from uh, officiating talk. Um, welcome relief. And we'll talk about some of the team news that's going on here, obviously. Big news out of Buffalo, the Queen City. Ralph Kruger, the new head coach of the Buffalo Sabres. And uh, a question in that regard comes from Ian, who says, Bobby, you likely have several Ralph Kruger questions by now, but if not, there has been much made about Mr. Kruger's leadership, communication, and organizational skills. His multiple championships in the Austrian First League seem to indicate he can coach hockey systems and understands how to break them down to defend and attack. However, I haven't heard much about his hockey abilities to do just that. Do you have any information on how he thinks, analyzes, prepares, and attacks systems? Essentially, is he a hockey coach or a coach? Thanks, Ian. Um, I'm not sure what the distinction there is between is he a hockey coach or a coach, other than maybe you're implying because he was with the Southampton Football Club in a managerial executive role for the last five years that... um, you know, does he really know the game inside out? And I think the answer to the question would be yes. Um, I mean, he's from Winnipeg. Come on, everybody in Winnipeg knows the game inside out. Um, and he's obviously got a a, 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 a heralded resume um, internationally, coaching, as you point out, in Austria, um, heading up the, the, the Swiss international program for as long as he did, coaching those Swiss teams at the Olympics, overseeing some great um, 
some great upsets along the way and um but also being involved and Mike Babcock had him as an assistant coach on the Canadian Olympic team um in Sochi um he was the head coach of the world uh, the team Europe in the uh, World Cup of hockey um a few years ago and uh, earned rave reviews for his his work coaching that team um, Paul Maurice was an assistant coach on that staff, and uh, I've talked to Paul um, about Ralph in the past, even before he got the Buffalo job, and, and Paul is a huge fan of, of Ralph as a really good hockey man on every level, um, to answer your question, Ian. Um, doesn't hurt that Paul and Ralph, I think, they they share the same lake in Lake of the Woods, um, and uh which is kind of cool. But in, in any case, um, the thing that Paul has always stressed about Ralph Kruger is that he's such a high-energy individual who cares so much about everybody that he comes in contact with that he impacts people and organizations in a very large way. And it's, it's uncanny, Paul often talks about... Um, the, the post-World Cup experience and how that group, the entire group feels an unbelievable common bond because Ralph made it such a positive experience for them. So when, when Paul Maurice runs into Zdeno Chara and they see each other, they say, hey, how, how's it going? And because obviously Chara was on that European team. And, and Paul say, how's it going? And great. And very quickly, the conversation will turn. Have you talked to Ralph lately? Either guy. Um, because Ralph seems to be the focal point for everybody associated, whether it was coaches, whether it was players, whether it was trainers, athletic therapists. Um, you know, it's it's an overused cliche, the whole, you know, you need somebody that can come in and, and create a real strong culture. But it's it, it jumps out at me that the people that know Ralph Kruger say this is what he does the best that he creates such a positive work environment for everybody that everybody ends up being at their absolute best and they're excited to come to the rink every day and they're challenged and they're, um, they're invigorated and they're motivated. And the two things that I'd always heard about Ralph as a hockey coach was that he's a real strong X's and O's guys, that he understands the tactics and strategies necessary in a game. Um, but that he's also a real people person and he knows how to push the buttons to motivate. And um, I've talked when Mike Babcock had him come in to, to be an assistant coach on the Olympic team. It wasn't necessarily just for X's and O's. I think Ralph's critical contribution to that Canadian Olympic team that won gold in Sochi and basically dominated everybody doing it was to make sure that the coaching staff led by Mike Babcock, as well as all the players, understood the difference between playing on big ice and small ice. And because of Ralph's enormous um, experience internationally um, and, and being part of the Swiss program for as long as he was, that he innately understood that stuff about the difference between big ice and small ice hockey and, and was invaluable in that role. So I just think that um, the hiring of Kruger in Buffalo is an inspired hire. I think he's a really bright guy. Um, Mike Babcock was quoted this week as talking just about how smart he is. And smart guys figure it out. 
and that with this Buffalo team being where they are in their development curve, that is ready to make some noise or they should be ready to make some noise. And hey, listen, they've still got some work to do. And we'll talk about that in a minute in terms of player personnel and what have you. But um, this this might be the right guy at the right time for the Buffalo Sabres. So um, I got to know Ralph a little bit. His, his son um, uh, played at Cornell University. At the for the same four years that my son Mike played at uh, St. Lawrence University, and so um, I got to see uh, Ralph's boy play for Cornell for four years. And Ralph wasn't always around, but um, we did share some ECAC hockey dad stories along the way. And uh, he's just a he's a real fun guy to be around. He's highly intelligent, highly organized. And excellent communication skills. So when I think you take everything that I kind of, that Paul Maurice has said about Ralph Kruger, what Mike Babcock has said about him, anecdotally what little I know about him, um, he just looks like a guy that, that, that's got a chance to get it. And uh, I think it's a good hire for Buffalo. Speaking of the Sabres, um, multiple questions, and I won't even bother reading them, but as some people asking about the, the Jeff Skinner negotiations, some people asking about what else Jason Botterill has up his sleeve here in terms of improving the hockey team. Uh, now that they've got their coach, um, that's obviously a, a big hurdle that they've, they've gotten over. The next big thing on the docket here is, um, is the Jeff Skinner negotiation. Now, my understanding of the Skinner situation is that nothing is going to happen on this until nothing's likely to happen on this until after the world championships. As we know, Jason Botterill is the general manager of team Canada, in addition to being the general manager of the Sabres. And while I think there was some pretty intense and, and dialogue early on the um, negotiations with um, the agents for, uh, for Jeff Skinner and, uh, and Botterill, um, there hasn't been anything for a while. But I would suspect once the World Championships are over here closer to the end of the month that they'll get busy and uh, and pick up those talks and resume things. Uh, nobody's really saying anything about what where the money's at or what have you. But I've got to believe that coming off the year that he had, even though he slowed up considerably in terms of the, the scoring, I've got to believe that Jeff Skinner is going to be looking for an eight-year contract and try to get nine million or more for the AAV and that's obviously a, a, a big chunk of change um, and there's a lot of Buffalo Sabres fans will say Ooh, maybe that's too much and there's going to be a lot of Buffalo Sabres fans who say they got to sign them on a team that had trouble scoring goals and and didn't have enough offensive depth how could you possibly think about going into next season without the guy who scored 40 goals in 82 games. And that was 40 goals in 82 games, and he didn't score very often um, at the tail end of the season. He really cooled off. So um, I'll be curious to see whether they can get a deal done. Um, I'm sure the Sabres want to do a seven- or an eight-year deal at in the in the eights, be it 8-5 or whatever, but some number that you would think begins with eight. Uh, keep in mind, he's 27 years old. And in fact, hold on a second here. We should sing happy birthday to Jeff Skinner. May 16th, 1992. Well, it's May 16th. So there you go. It's uh, happy 27th birthday to Jeff Skinner as of today. 
And I guess maybe the Sabres want to give him a birthday present. Nine million a year, nine five, I don't know. But anyways, um, I'm guessing that I don't know what the difference might be where they're at. Is it a million? Is it half a million a year? I'm not even sure. But um, and is it an issue? It hasn't been contentious so far. Um, but I've got to believe that once this world championship is over, um, the Sabres will drill down on this and they'll either get the deal done. Uh, and uh, I'd be curious to hear from Sabre fans, if the deal is $9 million a, y- a year or more on an eight-year deal, do you think that's a good deal? Or do you think it absolutely needs to come in in the eights? Um, and some people are going to say, what's the difference between eight, five, and nine? or nine and nine five, um, you know, are you going to split hairs on a 40 goal score? So um, we shall see. That's um, as for other things the Sabres might be working on. I know that they wanted to um, add uh, a veteran free agent forward if they could probably in UFA, but um, you know, if they had to trade for one, I suppose they could. Um, they are, they need to quite aside from the Skinner thing, and especially if Skinner's gone, oh my God, then they're definitely going to need more offense. But even with Skinner in the lineup, they feel like they need to uh, enhance their offensive depth on that front. Um, you got some injury issues on defense. Um, Zach Bogosian not going to be ready to start the season. Um, their Swedish defenseman, Lawrence, is it Pilot? Pilot? I forget how to pronounce his name, but in any case, Looks like he's not going to be ready to start the season. And I saw Brandon Montour came back from the World Championships. Hopefully that one won't be too bad for the Buffalo Sabres. But uh, it's like voodoo doll time on the uh, the Sabre blue line as far as the injuries go. Okay, one more quick question here on the Buffalo Sabres. Um, this comes from Mike in Seattle. Hey, Bob, I've been a fan of your work going back to your days with the hockey news and love the Bobcast. Anyway, I was wondering if you'd clear up something that's been bothering me. My question has to do with the conditional first-round pick that Buffalo traded to Anaheim for Brandon Montour. With St. Louis finishing 12th overall in league standings, they have the 20th pick right now. And I should point out that right now for Frank was on Friday, April 19th. But if they lose before the conference final, go Jets go, and say one one or more of Dallas, Columbus, Vegas, Colorado go on to at least the conference final, that pushes St. Louis down the draft board to 19th, possibly lower. Does that allow Buffalo to keep the St. Louis pick, or is the only thing that matters where St. Louis finished in the regular season? Thanks for your time. Keep up the good work. Mike in Seattle. should point out on that February 24th, 2019 trade, Brandon Montour to the Buffalo Sabres for Brendan Gooley and the conditional first-round pick in 2019 that belongs to either San Jose or St. Louis that Buffalo had picked up in a previous deal. The condition was as follows. If St. Louis picks at number 19 or higher, Anaheim gets the San Jose pick. If St. Louis picks at 20 or lower, Anaheim has the option to pick whichever one of the Anaheim or San Jose picks they want. So obviously the more favorable one would be Anaheim's play in that situation. And because the St. Louis Blues have made the conference final and all those teams 
that uh, Mike in Seattle mentioned fell by the wayside, Dallas, Columbus, Vegas, and Colorado. We know now that the Blues are going to be picking either the, the Blues pick would be 29th, 30th, uh, sorry, 28th, 29th, 30th, or 31st. Um, of the four remaining teams, St. Louis has the lowest point totals, 99. Carolina was tied at 99, but um, St. Louis gets dropped down because of the uh, the tiebreaker. Carolina had the better ROW. San Jose had 101 points. Boston had 107 points. So anyways, the um, obviously the, uh, the 28th pick goes to... Um, the team that loses in the conference finals with the fewest number of points. So if St. Louis loses, um, their pick would be 28. And obviously if San Jose moves on, their pick would be uh, either 30 or 31 because the Stanley Cup finalists and the Stanley Cup champion pick at 30 and 31. Anyways, um, we know that um, that condition now, uh, St. Louis is picking 20 or lower and Anaheim will make the pick and take whichever one's better. So it'll either be, they'll be picking one of 28 or 29 and uh, one of, or one of 30, 31, depending on how things go. Next up, let's talk a little bit about the Philadelphia Flyers. And this email question comes from Andrew Alton. Hey, Bob, will the Flyers be players at the draft in Vancouver? They have a deep pool of prospects and maybe not all of them fit in their future plans. With dollars to spend, the number 11 pick overall in the draft, and a bevy of prospects, does Chucky two trades have the gumption to make a big trade that sends shockwaves through the NHL? Chucky two trades. That's pretty funny. Obviously referring to Philadelphia Flyer general manager Chuck Fletcher. Um, I'm not sure what the reference is to the Chucky two trades. Maybe uh, Andrew could follow up with an email and enlighten. In any case, you're right. Philadelphia does have the number 11 overall pick. And uh, and because they the Flyers do want to try to start making some noise here, and Chuck Fletcher was kind of hired on that um, on that premise, um, because at the time it seemed like Comcast Spectacor um, thought that maybe Ron Hextall was being too patient, and they wanted somebody to come in and uh, and have a. I think it was um, Dave Scott, the CEO of Comcast, who said he was looking for somebody with quote a bias for action. Um, do we expect Chuck Fletcher to be active? And I would say yes. Within reason, you got to be careful hanging labels. I hate hanging labels, and and I might have even done it myself on an earlier Bobcast where I said, "Oh yeah, Chuck Fletcher, he's going to be busy. He's got lots to do. He wants to get a top two line center. He wants to get a veteran top four defenseman. He wants to do this. He wants to do that. And he does. He does want to do all those things, but you don't do them if they don't make sense. And so if you start promoting a general manager of this is going to be a guy that's really going to turn things upside down, and then he doesn't do it. It might not be his fault that he doesn't do it. It was my, maybe my fault for labeling me as somebody who was definitely going to do it. It's got to make sense. And, um, you know, the Flyers are well healed with a lot of prospects. Um, they took Joel Farabee, 14th overall in 2018. Morgan Frost, 27th overall in 2017. Um, Isaac Ratcliffe, 
35th overall in 2017, and Ratcliffe and the Guelph Storm, of course, are representing Ontario in the Memorial Cup. We'll have a little more on the Memorial Cup in a few minutes. Um, I don't think Chuck wants to trade those guys, but I think, you know, if he was to get a top-pairing defenseman or a legit second-line center, then, yeah, anybody or everything in anything in the Philly organization within reason could be in play. And um, they are well-heeled with draft picks. They, they've got all their own picks this year. Every, every round of each of the f- seven rounds, the Flyers own their own picks. They've got an extra third. They've got an extra sixth. They've got an extra seventh. So I could absolutely see Chuck Fletcher using number 11 overall, um, a prospect, and, a, and a, maybe a, one of those spare third-round picks to try and get a legitimate NHL talent to come in and accelerate things for the Philadelphia Flyers. But, I mean, he's not out there shopping Farabee, Frost, and Ratcliffe, um, or he's not guaranteeing by any stretch that he would trade that 11th overall pick, but um, it's out there. As for the Flyers' big picture, um, sometimes get questions. What about Claude Giroux? What about Voracek? What, what about their veteran core? Are they going to turn this thing over? And I think Chuck's on record as saying that he wants to get more good players, not less, and that in in the case of guys like Giroux and Voracek and Van Riemsdyk, um, you know, they're, they're, they're part of this going forward. And, um, but that isn't to say some quote unquote veteran players couldn't move the, the Flyers strength is having younger defensemen like Ivan Provorov, Travis Sanheim, uh, Phil Myers, um, all three of those guys I expect, well, Provorov, he's not a kid anymore. He's an NHL. He's a, he's now a veteran NHL player for all intents and purposes. Um, Travis Sanheim, not as experienced, but boy, he's going to be a really good one. And, so Provorov and Sanheim, are, I, they're definitely on on the the Flyers roster this season. Um, I think there's a real good chance Phil Myers is there as well. Um, you know, and you've got uh, veteran guys like uh, Shane Gostisbehere and uh, Radko Gudis. You know, Gostisbehere is an interesting guy. I think he could potentially become available. Um, I don't know that. I wouldn't necessarily say the Flyers are shopping them, but if you want to make a big splash and, and try to get a big piece up front um, and you do feel like you've got a surplus of offensive-minded, puck-moving defensemen on the back end, then I would think Gostas Bear more likely than Provorov, Sanheim, or Myers would be the piece that might be in play. And I say might be in play because I don't think that uh, uh, they're shopping them. But I think they're looking for a top four defenseman who's got penalty killing ability and more of a stabilizer on the blue line. And as I say, you, you can't you can't have them all. You know, Robert Hag, Costaspare, Gudis, uh, Samuel Morin, Provorov, Sandheim, Myers, goes on and on and on. So um, you know, we'll keep an eye on the Flyers and and what they're going to do um, between now and the draft. But I would expect. Uh, uh, Chuck to be looking for that that veteran help uh, at center and uh, on the blue line. Got a couple of questions on everybody's favorite team, the Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, so here we go. Uh, first one from Marcus in Scarborough. Hey, Bob, do you think the Russians the Leafs signed will make the team next year? And does that leave the door open 
Did Freight Andreas Janssen or Kasperi Kapanen? Love the show. Uh, that from Marcus in Scarborough. Well, Marcus, the two Russians you refer to, I'm assuming, are Igor uh, Korshkov, who's currently playing with the Toronto Marlies. Uh, he was a second-round pick, 31st overall in the 2016 NHL draft. Big guy, six foot four. Um, 180, 190, uh, big body, not the quickest, uh, of feet. And, um, in his case, I'd be surprised if he's NHL ready next year. Um, I think he's going to need some time in the American hockey league to prove himself, uh, get used to the small ice, uh, show that he can handle the pace of North American pro hockey. So I wouldn't anticipate necessarily seeing him in the Leaf lineup next season, although Mike Babcock does love big guys. So we shall see. The other Russian you're referring to is uh, Ilya Makayev, who we uh, talked about on the last Bobcast. And uh, it was made official a couple of days after we did the last Bobcast that uh, Makayev had in fact signed with the Toronto Maple Leafs. And in his instance, he's a six foot two, six foot three, uh, 190-pound winger that uh, put up some nice numbers in the KHL this year. I would say it's virtually certain uh, that he's going to start the season on the NHL roster. He, he certainly appears to be a bona fide NHL talent. Um, more, you know, third line, bottom half of the lineup guy as top half of the lineup. But um, and Mike Babcock's really high on him, and Babcock was instrumental in getting him signed, as we talked about on the the last Bobcast. And so, um, as I said, I think Pencil Makayev in for a spot on uh, the Toronto Maple Leaf roster. And whether that's on the third line or the fourth line, I'm not sure. But uh, uh, he's gonna have to play his way off the roster, in in my view. Now, Marcus, as for your reference about trading Andreas Janssen or Kasperi Kapanen, i got to be honest with you. I'll, I'll be really surprised if that happens. And obviously, the X factor here is Mitch Marner, how much money he's going to make. We're not going to talk Marner contract. Uh, we did enough of that in the last episode of the Bobcast. I'll only say this. I look at Janssen and Kapanen and don't see them as a short-term problem in terms of the money that they're going to make. Um, and we've talked about this before. Andreas Janssen has salary arbitration rights. This is a good thing for the Leafs. He's going to get a one-year award probably at some number between 2.5, I'm guessing, uh, maybe 3.5. 3.5 may be high, 2.5 may be low. I don't know. I'm not an arbitrator. But the key is, regardless of what Marner gets, I've got to believe that Janssen is going to be part of the team next year and at a number that makes sense on the ARB award. Same deal, and we talked about this with Kasperi Kapanen in the past. He's going to get, in my mind, probably a two-year bridge deal um, at a shade under $3 million a year. Um, there's all sorts of precedents and comparables out there for that. So I don't see either one of these guys as being a problem in terms of their contract. Um, and I think they're good value at those numbers, and that if the Leafs need to shed salary, and they may need to do that, my guess is that they'll look elsewhere to shed it, and that it won't be Janssen, and it won't be Kapanen. Next Leaf question comes from Anthony from Hamilton. Hey, Bob, how likely do you think it is the Leafs trade for Colin Miller from Las Vegas. He's a former Sioux Greyhound player. I think he captained the team when Dubas was there. He's a right shot that would immediately push Zaitsev down the lineup, and he's on an affordable deal. 
Also, if you were to rank these five players in terms of most likely to be traded or not to be a Leaf next season, how would you rank Zaitsev, Connor Brown, Andreas Janssen, Kasperi Kapanen, and Patrick Marlowe, with one being most likely to be traded slash not on the team next year? Cheers, Anthony from Hamilton. Well, Anthony, I think on the Colin Miller front, um, he's eminently available. Um, He certainly fell out of favor in Vegas this past season, was a healthy scratch in the playoffs, um, which is a far cry from some of the really good work he did in his first year in Vegas um, when he was part of that uh, group that went to the Stanley Cup final and played quite well and reliably on their back end. But he's obviously fallen out of favor with um, head coach Gerard Gallant. I think there's a... uh, a real inconsistency to his game. I think he um, he's he's mistake prone. Is the the scouting report on him? Um, and uh, as such, Vegas is looking to shed salary. Um, they've got their own salary cap concerns coming up for next season. And Colin Miller is a guy that is eminently available and because of his connection to Kyle Dubas and the Sioux Greyhounds. I think it's probably a fair question to ask. It, I mean it doesn't mean that Kyle Dubas is going to get every player that he ever came across in junior hockey. Um, but depending on what the price is um, and the fact that Colin Miller, and I don't have it in front of me here, but I think he's got two or three years left at an affordable number. So a little over 3 million cap hit. If I'm going to, um, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I don't have time to look it up here. We're starting to run out of time on the old Bobcast. So anyways, um, so to your point, I don't know that Miller would necessarily push Zaitsev down in the lineup. And as we kind of look at the um, the Leaf defense for next year, obviously Morgan Riley is uh, locked and loaded as the main guy. I can see the Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, trying to get Ron Hainsey back on an affordable one-year deal. Um, I know Hainsey's a polarizing guy for Leaf fans because if he's around, many feel Mike Babcock plays him too many minutes for his age um, and uh, for the type of player that he is. But um, I still think the Leafs, especially with Travis Dermott uh, undergoing shoulder surgery and probably not being available until November sometime and missing the first month of the season. I could see where Hainsey becomes that much more important to get signed to a one-year deal if he's up for it. And I don't know why he wouldn't be. So if Hainsey's back, you for now just pencil Riley Hainsey in as a pair. Um, you had Muzzin and Zaitsev who played uh, significant minutes as, and, and very well, I might add, in the shutdown rule. And, you know, is Zaitsev overpaid at the, the, the foreign change that he's making? Yeah. Is he too many years? Yeah. But is he still a useful NHL defenseman for the Toronto Maple Leafs? I, I would say yes, most definitely. And he's going to have a spot on this team. So um, Muzzin and Zaitsev are back. Um, Callie Rosen, who's just coming off an injury and playing with the uh, the Toronto Marlies in the Calder Cup playoffs. I think he's almost guaranteed to be one of the six top six defensemen on next year's team, pending what happens, what he does in in training camp and Dermot once he's healthy. So there's six defensemen for you. There's, they obviously need more depth and they're going to have to go out and, and either sign a free agent or trade for somebody. And Colin Miller could be somebody that they trade for. I know a year ago we talked about the Leafs maybe having had conversations with the Vancouver Canucks on Chris Tanev, um, the problem with Tanev is that he's extremely injury prone. And as such, I don't know that the Leafs or anybody else are going to pay a huge premium to um, to get Tanev out of Vancouver. Um, 
And so then the question for Vancouver becomes, is it worth trading a guy if you're not getting very much back for him and if it's a soft deal? So um, those are certainly things to keep an eye on. Now, in, in to Anthony's question about ranking the players, Zaitsev, Brown, Janssen, Kapanen, and Marlowe, uh, one being most likely to be traded or not on the team next year, five being least likely to be traded or back on the team next year. Um, of those five players, I would say I'll put Janssen and Kapanen at number four and five. I would put Zaitsev at... Uh... Okay, hold on a second here. I forgot about Marlowe. Marlowe's a different cat because he's got a full no-move clause and... Um, He's not an easy trade to make. And so I'm going to put Marlowe at number five simply because of his no-move status. I'm going to put um, Kapanen at number four and Janssen at number three, uh, Zaitsev at number two, and I would put Connor Brown at number one. Um, I'm, I said this on previous podcasts. I'm not sure how you can pay $2.1 million to a guy who's effectively playing on your fourth line and just barely getting into the double-digit goal totals. Um, now, if you can play Brown higher in your lineup and he's a 20-goal man, then by all means, um, maybe somebody else moves. But um, I would think Brown is a candidate to potentially be traded. And I guess if you're looking at forwards, I mean, they're not trading Austin Matthews. They're not trading John Tavares. Um, heaven forbid, they're not trading Mitch Marner. Um, I've said they're not going to trade Janssen and Kapanen. Um, William Nylander, is that somebody they might, under the right set of circumstances, trade? I don't believe they want to. I don't believe Kyle Dubas is thinking about that. But, you know, if the right deal were on the table for a stud defenseman, um, then absolutely you would have to consider it. Um, the next guy that you didn't mention, Anthony from Hamilton, but that I would put in that mix, and I'm not saying they're shopping him, but Nazem Kadri is a guy who, in my mind, um, at least you'd have that conversation. The problem with trading Kadri would be that with, with, with Tavares and Matthews as your one-two punch at center, Kadri fits very nicely, both from a salary point of view um, and a slotting point of view as your number three center. And if you don't have him, then who the hell do you have there? That would leave a, a significant hole. Um, but nevertheless, you'd have to at least consider your options on something like that, as you would on Brown. So the, the, if, if I were going to say there's three forwards that might merit trade conversation, the big deal would be Nylander, the middle, the medium deal would be Kadri, and the lower end deal and the more likely one would be Connor Brown. So I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's kind of where we're at with the Leafs. Holy jumping, I just realized that we're 60 plus minutes into the Bobcast and I haven't done the Untucket read yet. So uh, as I initially said, when we first got Untucket as a advertiser on the Bobcast, there once was a man from Nantucket whose shirt was so long he couldn't tuck it. And I better not go with the rest of that. Anyways, uh, as I always like to say, hey guys, it's never a good look when you untuck a long, bulky dress shirt. Don't look like crap. Look good. And that's why Untuck It makes shirts that are specifically designed to be worn untucked. 
A casual shirt, not too long, not too short. Not so short that your belly's hanging out. It's not a good look. And not so long that it's all down around your knees. Perfect. Just down a little lower than your belt, right around your pocket line on your jeans. Untucked shirts are a go-to for any occasion from casual to dressy. They've got so many sizing options. Every guy can find the perfect shirt. And uh, regular Bobcast listener, Gary Lawless from Las Vegas, tells me that he has purchased an Untucked shirt. And you know Gary. He looks good. Anyways, go to Untucket.com and check out all the new spring arrivals. Use the promo code BOBCAST for 20% off your purchase. That's BOBCAST, B-O-B-C-A-S-T, 20% off. And if you're in Toronto, get to that retail store at Sherway Gardens. But I think there's 50-plus retail stores all over uh, the United States. Look online at Untucket.com. Find the one closest to you. Go in. Get a new wardrobe and stop looking like you were dressed by, I don't know what. Not even sure where to go with that one. A man from Nantucket. Yeah, him. Promo code BOBCAST gets you 20% off. Quick little bit of listener feedback um, as we're running out of time here. Um, and this is referenced, I talked a little bit about Patrick Marlowe uh, on the Toronto Maple Leaf question. And I talked more about those 35 and over contracts um, Patrick Marlowe signed with the Toronto Maple Leafs when you sign a th- over 35 player to a multi-year deal. And uh, Stephen was kind enough to uh, listen very carefully to the last episode of the Bobcast and point out a mistake that I made. So here it is. Hi, Bob. I was listening to the latest edition of the Bobcast, and in your discussion of Patrick Marlowe's contract, I believe you said that potentially burying Marlowe's deal in the minors would grant $1.075 million worth of salary cap relief for the Leafs. I don't believe this is the case. Further to section 50.5, parentheses D, parentheses B, parentheses 5. I think my citation is right there. They'd only gain 100 k of additional cap relief. I've included a screenshot of the related entry in the CBA. This isn't to mention his no-move clause, which, of course, will further limit any options there. Hope this email finds you well, and have a wonderful day, Stephen. And Stephen, you are absolutely correct, sir. I was wrong. You were right. Um, you, you don't get to bury the uh, the, the 1.075 million that most teams could bury when they send an NHL contract to the minors. Uh, a one-way contract to the minors. It is only $100,000 as specified in the CBA. So you, sir, are much wiser than me. And you already knew that. So did I probably. Uh, and you're absolutely right too. And I, if I didn't mention it before, when you've got a full no-move clause like Patrick Marlowe, it becomes exponentially difficult, if not impossible, to get that player to the minors. Because uh, in order to uh, go to the minors... You need to go on waivers, and uh, I don't think that uh, unless you're buying a player out, you can circumvent the end, the no-move clause in that instance. So uh, thanks for the education, Stephen, as always. Okay, our uh, last hockey question of this Bobcast is from Jeff Putnam in Tobiano. Yeah, I think that's how you pronounce it. T-O-B-I-A-N-O. Tobiano? Uh, British Columbia. Hope that's right. If it's wrong, 
I'm sure I'll hear about it. Uh, question, subject, questions about the future. Dear Bob, thanks for your Bobcast series. I really enjoy your stories and perspective as I drive across southern British Columbia for work. By the way, there are some great new wineries in the Kamloops area, Harper's Trail and Monte, Monte Creek. So I'm having a tough time talking today. Harper's Trail and Monte Creek Ranch Vineyards, to name a couple that are worth a visit if you're ever in the area. Well, thank you for those wine touts. I will, if I'm in the shoe swap, I will check them out. Now my question. With Kelowna hosting the Memorial Cup in 2020, it made me wonder if you think there could be a better CHL playoff format than currently exists. It seems to me there is a massive break in time between various league finals and the eventual Memorial Cup week. Also, the host team is often the weakest team in the grouping. There must be a better way to crown a champion. With thanks, Jeff Putnam from Tobiano, British Columbia. As I said, thanks for the wine. Uh, Memorial Cup, of course, um, starts this uh, Friday. Um, yeah, tomorrow in... Um, in Halifax, 101st edition of the Memorial Cup, you've got the host Halifax Mooseheads facing the Western Hockey League champion Prince Albert Raiders. You've got the OHL champion Guelph Storm will play the QMJHL champion Rouen Naranda Huskies um, on Saturday. So that's cool. Anyways, here we go. Um, okay, well, obviously this year, the host team, Halifax, wasn't too shabby. Um, because they got to the, on their own merit, got to the final uh, against Rouen Naranda before losing. Um, by the way, the, the teams for this year's Memorial Cup look really strong. Uh, Rouen Naranda is obviously great. And how about Noah Dobson? Back-to-back -back Memorial Cups for him. Last year he won it with Acadie Bathurst. He was fantastic, by the way. Uh, he's had another great playoff. He got traded to Rouen Naranda. So the Huskies are obviously uh, a real good team. Uh, Halifax looks legit because, as I say, it's not often that a host team um, gets to their league final, um, but that's the case this year. I can tell you from personal experience seeing the Guelph Storm play, they're really good. And, and boy, are they streaky. <laughs> um, they were streaky to the tune of sweeping my son's Kitchener Rangers in four games, which I wasn't very happy about in round one. And then they fell behind 3 nothing to the London Knights in the second round of the playoffs, and then reeled off four straight wins against London. That's not easy to do. Uh, game seven in London, man, oh, man, full credit to the Storm for that one. Then they fell behind Saginaw 3-1 uh, to one in the Western Conference Final, and they reeled off three straight wins there, including a game seven in Saginaw's barn. So, and Saginaw was a real good team. They loaded up this year with Owen Tippett and uh, Ryan McLeod and others. So um, Guelph was full value for that one. And uh, then they fell behind the Ottawa 67s. Ottawa was, had won 14 straight to start the playoffs. We're up 2 nothing on Guelph in the uh, OHL final. And then Guelph basically just rampaged the rest of the way, won four straight. And uh, they're in the Memorial Cup. So uh, good luck to George Burnett and, uh, and the Guelph Storm. Uh, uh, Nick Suzuki playing ridiculous hockey, as is Dmitry Samarukov. And you'll remember that on an earlier Bobcast, I talked about Samarukov and what a good one the Edmonton Oilers got in the third round um, with that big defenseman. So anyways, um, excited about this year's Memorial Cup, as always. Um, 
to your specific question, Jeff, about the future, the OH, uh, sorry, the the CHL, the Canadian Hockey League, has no immediate plans for any different looks for the Memorial Cup. Um, and I'm with you. I sometimes kind of cringe a little bit at the host team if the host team's not that good. Um, and yet it's a tournament, so you just know that anything could happen. Um, I mean, when the Windsor Spitfires won as a host um, a few years ago, um, you know, they got knocked out in the first round of the playoffs by the London Knights, and then they won the Memorial Cup. And and I know that they were happy to win the Memorial Cup, but for me, that's that was almost like a kid's team just winning a minor hockey tournament. They'd been off from the end of the first round all the way through. So at least this year with Halifax being in the QMJHL final, they're, they're full value for for being at the Memorial Cup. But the league really feels, the CHL really feels, they do need a host team to make it fly in terms of the attendance. Um, my favorite Memorial Cup format, not at all viable now because of costs and what have you, but just the old days when they used to have best of sevens. And because there was the, the three league conundrum, the, the, the West, Ontario, and Quebec, in alternating years, the West and Ontario, sorry, uh, Ontario and Quebec would play sort of in a Memorial Cup semifinal and to go against the winner of the Western League in a best of seven at, in the Western League's home site. And then they'd rotate it around another year. It would be uh, uh, the WHL and OHL would, would play each other best of seven. I, I'm talking back here in the early 70s or whatever. Um and I like the idea of a Memorial Cup best of seven. That's kind of cool, but because of the size of our country, it's just not feasible. But anyways, um, to your question, Jeff, there's no plans to change the current format of the Memorial Cup, and we just hope we get good teams like we got this year, including a great host like Halifax. Two quick non-hockey questions to wrap up episode 17 of the Bobcast. First one is from Will from Toronto. Hi, Bob. I know lately you've said that you used to drink a lot of California cabs, but have recently become a big fan of Italian red wine. I'm in almost the exact same position as you, except the reverse. I used to drink almost exclusively Italian reds. Lately, however, I've been addicted to California cabs. Do you have any good bottles? I should try. Thanks for sharing your wealth of hockey knowledge, but more importantly, your wine expertise. Will from Toronto. Will, I would not call it wine expertise, but as we all like to say, we know what we like. And right now, you're right. I like the Italians way better than the Cali Cabs. But I hear you. The Cali Cabs can be very seductive. Um, depends on your price range. Um, and Cali Cab prices seem to go up steadily at the LCBO here in Ontario. Um, I can remember, for example, um, getting a, a particular bottle. Like, there's Edge, uh, California Cab, just E-D-G-E, Edge. Um, I really liked it. It was really good. And when I first bought it at the LCBO, um, it was in the, the high 20s, 28, 29 bucks. It was under 30 bucks. And I saw it recently a few months ago in the LCBO, and, and it was somewhere between 35 and 40 bucks. So in a relatively short period of time, two or three years, it's gone up like, like almost 10 bucks a bottle, nah, seven, eight bucks a bottle. Uh, and I've noticed that with the Louis Martinis, uh, the Coppola, Samomi. Um, those are some of the what used to be under $30 bottles of Cali Cab that I used to buy. The Louis Martinis, very good. Um, 
the uh, Francis Ford Coppola, Coppola uh, ivory label cab um, was 23 or 24 bucks. It's probably high 20s now. It was very nice. I liked it. And that uh, I, I call it Samomi. I'm not sure if it's pronouncing it correctly, but it's C-A, new word, M-O-M-I. I really enjoyed that one. And uh, it was in the 20s, but now I think it's in the 30s. But I, I would jump all over those. Then there's the old standbys. I mean, uh, um, decoy. Duckhorn makes decoy. I think it used to be under 30 bucks. Now it's probably 35, 37 bucks at the LCBO. Uh, J-Lore is still in the 20s, I think, for its regular uh, California cab. Liberty School is a, is a cheaper cab in the 20s, probably. Um, that's quite good. But obviously, if you want to really go for the gusto, um, your 100-plus buck bottles would be Camus, Silver Oak, Inglenook. Um, in the mid-range, in the $50, $60 range, Mount Veter uh, cab is a very nice uh, California cab. And in the also in the mid-range, not 100 bucks, but probably 75-ish, 80, um, would be the Duckhorn cab. I'm a big Duckhorn guy. Um, had the, the great fortune on our trip to Napa two or three years ago um, to have a beautiful catered dinner at the Duckhorn Vineyard. It, it, was, it will go down as one of the most special dinners and nights that uh, myself, my family, and my friends have ever had. And uh, that was absolutely fantastic. So shout out to my pal Dale from Duckhorn who arranged that whole thing. Um, and two other Cali cabs that I really like um, uh, that maybe aren't as over-the-top Cali cab. Uh, Shadow Montalena is a really nice bottle, and I think it's probably around $75, $80. Um, and the Ridge cab is uh, outstanding. And uh, any Ridge wine you can get is really good. It's like Duckhorn and Ridge. Those are my uh, go-to Californias. Uh, Ridge does a lot of Zinfandels, but they've got a really nice uh, Cali cab as well. And if I do happen to get to San Jose for the Stanley Cup final, um, then maybe a trip to Ridge on an off day will be in order. So there's our wine conversation for episode 17 of the Bobcast. And final Bobcast question comes from John McGill in Fort McMurray, Alberta. Hey, Bob, love listening to the podcast. I remember one time you mentioning you were going to be on the Howard Stern wrap-up show. I've been listening to Howard Stern for years. I'm just wondering how you became involved with them, who your favorite whack packer is, and maybe something you remember from the show that makes you crack up. For me, it's anything tradio related. I can't contain myself whenever Richard pretends to be the wife calling into tradio. Keep up the great work. Cheers from Scott in Fort McMurray, Alberta. Well, you're right. I'm a big Howard Stern fan. Um, I broke my string. I thought um, 2019, I did not make my appearance on the Howard Stern wrap-up show with John Hine and Gary Delabate. Um, I'll have to try and get back to doing that next year, 2020. I did it in 2017. I did it in 2018. And I kind of got hooked into it just uh, sort of by accident. Um, I think I had a conversation on Twitter with John Hine. He's a big Pittsburgh Penguin fan. And one thing led to another, and I probably weaseled an invitation onto the Howard Stern wrap-up show in uh, those two years. Wasn't able to do it because of scheduling this year. Got to get back to it, hopefully, for next year. As for the Howard Stern show itself, 
I'm not huge on the whack pack, um, but my favorite whack packer would probably be Beetlejuice. Um, personally, like the interviews on Howard more than anything else, um, but I do get a kick out of a lot of this stuff. And the one that absolutely cracks me up, and and I don't know that everybody shares my affection for it, is when Howard Stern um, pretends to be uh, either Millie Bobby Brown's agent or the Khaleesi's agent. I could listen to Howard Stern do the uh, the agent thing all day long. Cracks me up like you could not believe. Really tickles my fancy. And should point out that um, Howard Stern's book, Howard Stern Comes Again, published by Simon & Schuster. There's one thing Howard and I share um, is a publisher. Um, his book's somewhat more successful than mine. But uh, Howard Stern Comes Again by Simon & Schuster, now available. And I just bought it. Um, on my Kobo, and uh, during the travel of the Stanley Cup final, I plan on reading it, and I look forward to it because uh, I think it's going to be fantastic, especially since so much of it is about the interviews that Howard Stern has done. His favorite interview uh, of all time with Conan O'Brien. He had Conan on the show this past week. I haven't listened to that. I'll have to uh, go to the uh, Sirius app uh, for Howard 100 and and get that going. But uh, I look forward to uh, that book. And um, anyways, that's it. So uh, that's the Howard Stern talk. That's it for episode 17 of the Bobcast. I got to hustle. It's Carolina, Boston tonight. Got to see if... uh, if the sweep is in effect, what a bizarro thing that is. Uh, the Islanders sweep the Penguins. The Canes sweep the uh, the Islanders. And now the Canes are in danger of being swept by the Boston Bruins. So uh, off to work for that. Uh, hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bobcast. We'll come back at you in a couple of weeks. And in a couple of weeks, what's the date? One second here. So the 16th, the 17th. The Stanley Cup final will be on. So we'll be doing it remote from somewhere. Uh, No idea where, but uh, probably Boston, but we shall see. Have a good one. Thanks. Take care. Okay, that's it for the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like to submit a question on hockey or just about anything else, email it to bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca, and we'll try to get it on the next Bobcast. Be sure to follow me on Twitter. That's At TSN Bob McKenzie. And for great hockey coverage all year round, follow the At TSN Hockey Twitter account and make tsn.ca your source for all things hockey, especially for the Tuesday and Thursday editions of Insider Trading with myself, Darren Dreger, and Pierre Lebrun. Thanks for tuning into the Bobcast. See you next time, and have a great weekend.